Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 12 is the text for this morning's sermon. I want to invite you to turn there. Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 12. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God with instruction about ablutions, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they then commit apostasy, since they crucify the Son of God on their own account and hold him up to contempt. For land which has drunk the rain that often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. Though we speak thus, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love which you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness in realizing the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience Inherit the promises. When I came to Bethlehem in the middle of 1980, the signs, there's one out there and one back there, had to be repainted so they could have the new pastor's name on them. And Rollin asked me what I would like to have painted on the back of the north sign here that faces the parking lot and I said I'd like to see Psalm 42.5 hope in God because that's what I'd like everybody to have ringing in their ears when they leave this building every Sunday that the central admonition and exhortation of every message is hope in God. And it's out there on the sign. Been there for six years. The whole verse goes like this. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my help and my God. Richard Sibbs is an old uh, Puritan preacher from the 17th century. He died in 1635. He used to preach at Cambridge. And uh, he wrote a whole book on that verse. He was called the sweet dropper in those days because his messages brought such joy and comfort and encouragement to people. He titled his book, The Soul's Conflict, with itself. Isn't that a great title for that verse? Listen. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? 
Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, soul. For I shall again praise him. He's my help and my God. As a soul in conflict with itself. A soul preaching to itself. You preach to yourself. You preach to your soul every day. If not, how in the world do you fight the fight of hope? How do you maintain hope unless you preach to yourself the truth of God? This is evidently not well known among the saints. This preaching to yourself. I was with Noel over in Cameroon last April. And uh, I told the Wycliffe missionaries about this because they battled with discouragement and some of them acted as though they'd never heard of such a thing before. I got a letter three months after I left from one of the young women who seemed to struggle most. And she said, while I was on holiday at the end of May, I had time to write myself four sermons on different topics. And it's been quite helpful to refer back to them from time to time. And then very realistically she adds, Though sometimes when I'm depressed, reasoning doesn't seem to get me very far, and it's easier just to try to hold on to certain verses or truths. Indeed. And I don't mean when I say preach to yourself long sermons. The best sermon you preach to yourself this week may be three words long. Hope in God. Or by the grace of God, you may have the strength to preach a whole verse to yourself. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my help and my God. That doesn't take too much strength, does it? Preach to yourself. There isn't any more important battle you can fight than the fight to maintain hope. And I love the Psalms because the Psalms fight. They fight for hope. They struggle. They wrestle for hope. And I want you to do that. I want you to learn to fight for your hope. A young woman from California came to me last Sunday night and asked for an interview because she was doing a psychology project on forgiveness. She's at the Fuller School of Psychology out in California, and she needed to tape some interviews with some pastors. Sure. So we met after the festival, and the first question she asked was something like this. Click. What are some of the feelings you have when you forgive somebody? And the first thing I thought of was, I've got to have hope to forgive somebody. I've got to feel that there's hope in my life. Or I don't have the emotional strength to absorb the offense and not retaliate. This is the way it works for me. I think this is the biblical pattern. Hope is supposed to be like a a reservoir behind the dam of your life. And when 
Somebody puts you down. Squash. You dip, this is the way I work anyway, I dip into the reservoir of hope and I gain resources of strength to absorb the offense and not retaliate or sink into self-pity and self-defense. No hope, though, no power. Or suppose I have setbacks in my life. I have plans and then I get sick. Or I have plans and then the board meeting doesn't go the way I'd hoped. I dip into the reservoir of my biblical hope and I gain emotional resources and strength to keep on going up over the obstacle on into the future. Or suppose I face temptation to be dishonest or to lie or to steal or to lust. Same thing. I dip into the reservoir of hope and gain the emotional energy and the emotional resources with which to stay on the narrow path of obedience and deny myself some short-lived, unsatisfying pleasure. But no hope, no power. That's the biblical fight that every single Christian must fight. It is normal Christian life. Normal Christian life is a fight for hope in God. It's the most important battle any of us can fight. Whether you're in the midst of a tragedy or whether you're in the midst of a success, there are threats against hope in God. In both cases, we begin today a series. It's going to last, Lord willing, through the end of July on hope. The concept of biblical my prayer in all of this is that your reservoir, no matter how dry you may feel it is right now, will just feel rivers of hope running down out of the mountains, filling up so that the Hoover Dam of your soul and its uh, big hydroelectric generators of joy and of love and of boldness and of endurance would just churn with the power of this deep reservoir of hope to the glory of God. That's my prayer for us as we begin this series on hope. The filling of your reservoir so that you have the emotional power and energy to live in paths of righteousness for the name of our great God and Savior. Now, today's message, as an introductory one, poses the most basic question of all. What is it? What is hope? You can't get very far with discussing its foundations or its effects or its wider nature and means until you know what you're talking about. So that's my question for today. What is biblical hope? And the first thing we're going to do is distinguish it from ordinary human hope. That is, the ordinary use of the word hope. What's that? Well, I took Benjamin, my 10-year-old, out to lunch yesterday. All you dads ought to do this with your kids. Different kid every weekend. 
and uh, we went to Perry's Pizza because we had a coupon. And uh, I said, Benjamin, I'll preach on hope tomorrow. Give me a sentence that defines hope so I know what the people are going to be thinking. And he said, well, hope is when you really want something. That's right. So that's what I'll tell the people tomorrow. That's the ordinary, run-of-the-mill, down-to-earth, human conception of hope. When you really want something. So that my kids might say, I hope Daddy gets home on time for supper tonight so we can play kickball after supper before he goes off to that committee meeting. Hope is a desire for something good in the future. When you really want something, you hope for it. That's the way we use it. That's a good definition. But, if you come to the Bible and import that definition into the biblical concept of hope, you'll never understand biblical hope. In fact... Biblical hope is almost the opposite of that definition. I don't mean that it's the opposite in the sense that biblical hope is a desire for something bad in the future. Nor do I mean that biblical hope is the rejection of something good in the future. Biblical hope is a desire for something good in the future. But let's go back to that sentence that my boys use. I hope Daddy gets home on time for supper tonight. You know what that means? I'm not at all sure Daddy's getting home on time for supper tonight. Part of the meaning of hope, as we ordinarily use it, is uncertainty. I hope it doesn't rain. I hope we win the game. I hope I get that advancement. But I'm not at all sure any of those things are going to come to pass. Hope means I don't know what's happening. But I know what I want to happen. That's not, N-O-T, not the biblical meaning of hope. That's the main point of the message today. When the Bible says, hope in God, it does not mean cross your fingers. He might win. Here's the definition of hope that I'll try to get out of the scriptures with you in just a moment. Hope is a confident expectation and desire for good in the future. I put two words on the front of Benjamin's definition to turn it into biblical hope. A confident expectation and desire for good that is coming in the future. Confidence is part of biblical hope. There is moral certainty in it. Now, before we get into the scriptures and I show you where I'm getting this, let me define for you what I mean by moral certainty because it's not a common expression. Let me distinguish moral certainty from mathematical certainty and merely logical certainty, okay? Got two apples sitting here. This is mathematical certainty, first of all. Here are two apples, and I add two more apples. It is mathematically certain that there are now 
4x. You got it. So we all know what mathematical certainty is. Mathematical certainty is the result of a totally non-moral law. 2 plus 2 is 4. It belongs to the nature of things. Here's what I mean by merely logical certainty. You all know this from school. All men are mortal. Plato was a man. Therefore, it is logically, absolutely certain that Plato was mortal. That's what I mean by sheer logical certainty. It belongs to the terms that that be true. That's not the kind of certainty I'm talking about when I talk about biblical sense. And you need, to, you need to grasp this because so many unbelievers will nail you in a conversation and say, prove it to me. Prove it to me. You know, with logical or with mathematical certainty. They don't require that of anybody else about anything. Not themselves or anybody in order to live. The way we usually live in life is on the basis of certainties and confidences that come another way. And I'm calling it Moral certainty. And here's what I mean. The word moral means it has to do with wills. That is the will of a person, God or human. When you talk about morality, right and wrong, you always are talking about something that is willed by a person. Things are not right and wrong. Willing is right or wrong. That's all that's right or wrong. Right or wrong has to do with acts of willing. Therefore, when I speak of moral certainty, I'm speaking of a certainty that is rooted in acts of will, character, of personhood, whether in God or in man. Now, let me illustrate, because that's abstract and may not take hold yet. I have a strong moral certainty that I will stay married to Noel till one of us dies. And I don't get that from any mathematical computation nor any strictly logical syllogism. Where do I get it? What is the nature of this thing called moral certainty? I get it from the nature of God-centered wills and the will of God. We have about 20 years now of experiencing each other's character and will. And we know the grace of God and His promises. We know what it's been like to appropriate that through a lot of situations. And out of this comes a stronger and stronger moral certainty. This will last. It isn't purely logical. It isn't mathematical. 
It's rooted in the nature of a God-centered will and a will of God, something that is more like iron than chalk. But we may be wrong. Right? Yes. And all the communists in the world might become Christians this afternoon. And in the next five years, it may be that no deception would creep into any advertising anywhere. And it may be that all of the pornographic shops in the nation will close by year's end because men master their lust. Logically and mathematically, there is nothing standing in the way of any of those things. They are just as possible as that I can lift my hand. Mathematically, logically, just one thing stands in the way. Morality. The will. And you and I are as certain as that I'm standing here that it will not happen. We would stake our lives on it not happening. Why? Because when you look at a will, whether it be divine or the human will of humanity or the will of a wife over 20 years, you can have certainty. You can have a moral Certainty. I do not say infallibility. That's why you should never fall for the unbeliever's demand that you prove Christianity the same way you can prove a syllogism or a mathematical formula. He doesn't live that way. He doesn't demand that of anybody else. He only is demanding it of you because he doesn't want to believe what you have to say. The certainty of Christian faith or the certainty of hope is a certainty that is rooted in the character of the revealed will of God manifested in Jesus Christ. And the certainty of a relationship is rooted in the character of a person perceived over an extended period of time in many situations. And what I mean by moral certainty then is not an infallible knowledge but the kind of certainty that lets you sleep at night. Get up without any butterflies in the morning and get over all the rough places in your life and it will carry you right through the grave into eternal life. You don't have to have so-called mathematical certainty for the certainty of relationships, for it to be real, powerful, deep, reasonable, strong. That's what I mean by moral certainty. Sink into self-pity. The end of the message this morning is Christian hope is not a finger-crossing, lip-biting hope that something might happen. It is a Confident expectation that good things are coming. Now let's go to the scriptures and see where that comes from.
Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 to 12, we'll look at first. You know the context here, it's, a, it's an ominous and a foreboding one in verses 1 to 8, because the writer holds out the possibility that people can have experienced movements of the Holy Spirit in their life. They can have tasted the powers of the age to come and be lost. And that's not a surprising thing when you read the words of Jesus in Matthew 7 that a person can cast out demons and prophesy and do all kinds of things in the name of Jesus Christ and depart from me. I never knew you is what they'll hear on the judgment day. People can have extraordinary spiritual experience. The Holy Spirit can do a mighty work of convicting you of sin, drawing you to the church, putting you in a Sunday school class, causing you to shape up your life, and you are lost. That text should not surprise people who know the deceptiveness of the human heart. Now here he comes right after that warning with a word of confidence. Verse 9. Though we speak thus, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love which you showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness in realizing the full assurance of hope unto the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now why is this writer sure that these people are not among the apostates? He is sure of it because he sees their perseverance in obedience. You see that in verse 10? He looks at their lives. And he notices that in the past they've worked, they've loved, and in the name of God they have served. But then look at that key phrase at the end of verse 10. And you are still doing it. That's how I know you're not among the apostates. Perseverance in obedience, not just a flash in the pan at Trout Lake, a Keith Green concert, a Billy Graham crusade, no perseverance in faith and obedience. You were serving the saints and you still are. Therefore, I know that God is at work in you and will honor this obedience. I am sure you're not among the apostates. You are persevering and giving evidence of God's saving work in your life. Now, Here's the admonition that follows upon that word of assurance. It's just what you'd expect. Verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show that same earnestness in realizing the full assurance of hope unto the end. Keep on. Keep on. Fight. Fight. Fight to maintain your hope. Do whatever you must do to realize the full assurance of hope to the end so that you will confirm your calling and election. Notice the connection between verse 12 and 11. This is very, very provocative. 
Verse 11 says, pursue hope with all your might. Do whatever you must do to have the full assurance of hope. And then the result of that, or the purpose of that in verse 12 is, so that you might be like those who through, and then he switches words on us, through faith and obedience inherit the promises. You would have expected him, I would have expected him to say, no hope though, hope, so that you will be like those who through hope and obedience, or through hope and perseverance or patience, inherit the promises. And he didn't, but that's what he meant, isn't it? Isn't the connection between verse 11 and 12 a way of explaining the relationship between faith and hope? Namely, that faith is hope. Now, I'm not sure whether you would buy that, that faith and hope are almost synonymous in this book. So let me give you a couple more verses to argue for this. Turn to chapter 10, if you'd like to follow with me. Chapter 10, there is one other place in this book where the word full assurance is used. But this time it's not used with hope, it's used with faith. Verse 22 of chapter 10. It says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And then the next verse says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now notice a couple of things. Notice that hope shouldn't waver. That's why I think hope is not a finger-crossing, lip-biting, oh, I hope it'll come true, but I'm not sure it will. That's not what the New Testament means by hope. It is an unwavering confidence in the promises of God. Now, how does it relate, though, secondly, to hope here in this context? Full assurance of faith, hold fast your hope unwavering. What's the connection there? Let me sum up what I think the connection is, and then I'll show you one other verse to try to demonstrate it. I think in the writer's mind, faith is the larger, con uh, the larger reality. Faith is the larger thing. And it is trust or confidence in whatever God has said. Inside this reality called faith, there is a dimension of it or a part of it called hope. So that hope is faith and much of faith is hope. Now to show you where I get that, more specifically, just look across the page maybe in your Bible to chapter 11, verse 1. This is the closest thing to a definition of faith in all the New Testament. Here's what it says. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now I would paraphrase that verse, first half of it, something like this. Wherever there is the full assurance of hope, taking the phrase from from uh, chapter 6, verse 11. Wherever there is the full assurance of hope, that's faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the full assurance of hope. But, notice the second half of the verse, that's not all faith is. 
Faith is also the conviction of things not seen, and some of those things are not future. They are present, and some are past. For example, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the world was created by the word of God. Nobody was there, and nobody can perform any scientific experiment to prove that. How are you ever going to have confidence that God made the world? It's past. From the testimony of God. So faith is the larger thing. Faith embraces everything that God has said and all of his integrity, whether it relates to past, present, or future. Whenever it relates to the future, it's hope. You can call it hope. Faith is hope when it's in the future tense, you might say. There are two reasons why this is very important to grasp, this relationship between faith and hope. The first reason is that it, it confirms the main point of the message this morning, namely that hope is not a finger-crossing uh, wishful thinking. Hope is confidence. And the reason we know that is because we all know faith is confidence. Everybody in here knows that the enemy of faith is doubt because faith ought to grasp the Word of God and be confident in it. Well, now that we know that hope is a dimension or a part of faith, that's the nature of hope too. Not a wishful thinking, but a, a grasping and a holding fast to and a confidence in God for the future. The second reason this is important to see is because it clarifies for us the nature of faith. There's a lot of mistakes people make about saving faith. And two mistakes that this idea guards us against are these. One, so many people restrict saving faith to a past event. I got saved when I decided to believe at camp, at the Keith Green concert, at the Billy Graham crusade. And they orient their whole life on that walking the aisle or lifting the hand. without any awareness, evidently, that this book is written to say, if you don't hold fast your confession of hope to the end, there's no reason to think that was real. And so when you define saving faith as having a huge dimension of it being hoping in the promises of God, then you have really brought people up short who think that they can be saved by some past act. The second thing it guards us against is that there are a lot of people who intellectualize faith, saving faith. They say, I believe that Jesus came into the world. I believe in a God. I believe he was born of a virgin. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe that he is in heaven right now. I believe he's coming again. That doesn't save anybody. Believing that things are true. Devil, the devil believes all of that. Hope saves. And unless you understand faith in that context, you're in grave danger of banking on something like sand. 
By grace are we saved through hope. Because hope is an indispensable and essential dimension of faith. Now let's close by looking at Romans 4 to see whether or not the Apostle Paul thinks in these same terms. We have one witness before us, the witness of Hebrews. If we had time, we could get the witness of 1 Peter, which says these very things. And I think we'll take time to get the witness of Romans before us, just very briefly. Romans chapter 4. Abraham is given as the model of saving, justifying faith. Look at verse 22. It says, this is why Abraham's faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. So, here's Abraham. He is justified by faith. Now, what is that faith which justifies? Look at verse 21. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So, what is his saving faith? It is a full, hearty conviction that what God promises is true. And a building of your life around that confidence. The confidence for Abraham was that he was going to have a son named Isaac, and through him he would be the father of many nations. Now, what does that have to do with hope? Well, you say that is hope. Well, let's look. Verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. Now, what does that mean? First of all, what does against hope mean? Well, that takes us back where we began. The, the ordinary use of hope means, uh, well, given the resources that there are available, that he might be on time. But since God hasn't promised that he's going to be on time, he might not be on time. In Abraham's life, he was too old to have a child. His wife was barren. All human resources said no hope. And he believed against it. He set himself against Human hope. But what did he do? It says he believed in hope. So there is another kind of hope, isn't there? There is a biblical hope that you don't have to set yourself against. You can set yourself in. And I'm not sure about the exact relationship in that verse between faith and hope. When it says, in hope, he believed. I don't know whether that means the hope came first or the faith came first or if they're intertwined or side by side. But wouldn't you agree if we just step back and read verses 18 to 22 that we could say this much with certainty? For Abraham and in the mind of the Apostle Paul, faith is a strong confidence in the Word of God. And hope is a strong confidence in the promises of God or the Word of God as it relates to the future.